Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the third and final week in this series called We Believe. I want to remind us where this all started with the early church and baptism. There's this great little book called The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism. It's written by Ben Myers. And I'd like to read a portion that's taken from the from an early third century document called The Apostolic Tradition. So if you will let me read. It says, on the eve of Easter Sunday, a group of believers has stayed up all night in a vigil of prayer, scriptural reading, and instruction. The most important moment of their lives is fast approaching. For years, they've been preparing for this day. When the rooster crows at dawn, they are led out to a pool of flowing water. They remove their clothes. The women let down their hair and remove their jewelry. They renounce Satan and are anointed from head to foot with oil. Then they're led naked into the water. And then they are asked a question. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? They reply, I believe, and they are plunged down in the water and raised up again. They are asked a second question. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried and rose on the third day alive from the dead and ascended in the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead? Again, they confess, I believe, and again, they are immersed in the water. Then a third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? A third time they cry, I believe, and a third time they are immersed. When they emerge from the water, they are again anointed with oil. They are clothed, blessed, and led into the assembly of believers where they will share for the first time in the Eucharistic meal. Finally, they are sent out into the world to do good works and to grow in faith. This was the baptismal tradition of the early 200s. Now, a lot has changed, right? Today, no one's removing all their clothes, and you're only going to be dunked once. But the confession of faith, which so very nearly mirrors the version of the Apostles' Creed that will be solidified and preserved in the next centuries, that confession remains true. For those who are baptized today in the faith, we will baptize you in the name of God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the reasons we decided to teach this short series, that we would have a better understanding of these ancient words and phrases, and therefore have a better understanding of our faith. So in the first week of this series, we learned that you live what you believe, and we explored the first statement of the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Last week, Pastor Mike reminded us that what we believe about Jesus is crucial, and he unpacked the middle section of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And this week... Well, you know where we're headed. We're going to wrap up by focusing on the final section, which in some ways seems to be a catch-all for whatever was missing. There's a lot of really good stuff at the end. So if you missed part one or two, you can get caught up anytime by listening or watching when you visit whoisgrace.com. And if you would like to learn more about what we believe, let me also recommend that you familiarize yourself with our statement of faith, core values, and bylaws. Gordon Fee, a prominent New New Testament professor, he remembers a student saying, God the Father makes perfectly good sense to me, and God the Son I can quite understand, but the Holy Spirit is a gray, oblong blur. And when hearing the analogy of the Spirit being like the wind, he recalls a child exclaiming, I want the wind to be uninvisible, right? My eight-year-old son feels the exact same way. He has often expressed his desire to see God or to see Jesus with his own eyes. And the Holy Spirit, well, that's a mystery I don't even think we're expecting to understand. But the creed is going to help us. It doesn't erase all the mystery. It's not trying to. After all, if God wasn't bigger than what we could fathom, he wouldn't be the omnipotent and sovereign Lord of all. 
So our big idea for today is this. Your belief changes the way you live. By faith, we believe. That's the message of the Apostles' Creed. And the result should be that our lives are changed. So let's break down the final belief statements today. The Creed reads, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Gordon Fee says, We must not merely cite the creed, but believe and experience the presence of God in the person of the Spirit. So let's get a little deeper into this first statement. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The study and theology of the Spirit is called pneumatology, from the Greek word pneuma, which means soul or spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is the Hebrew word ruach, which is translated usually as breath. But the meaning of the word is so much richer. The Israelites understood that God's ruach was his energizing presence. And we first see this breath of God in Genesis 1 verse 2, where it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God's energizing presence came into the chaos and brought beauty and order, creating all life. Now, the Spirit shows up over and over and over again in the Old Testament, especially in the empowering of individuals for certain tasks. So remember Joseph, who was empowered to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and the prophet Isaiah, empowered to speak and write the words of God. We see the Spirit up and down the Old Testament books, but the actual title, Holy Spirit, is only used twice. However, the early church, they took their understanding of the Old Testament Hebrew word ruach and adopted the title Holy Spirit as the Christian term for the third person of the Trinity. And so through the Gospels and Acts and the letters of the New Testament, we'll find the Holy Spirit at work. Consider one more episode from the New Testament, Jesus' baptism. Matthew's Gospel tells us, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Note that there's a similarity to Genesis 1. The Spirit comes down as the energizing presence of God because a new work has begun, a new creation, through the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's pretty cool. Now, I'm not sure how much the disciples of Jesus fully understood the Holy Spirit while they were following him around, but Jesus did this little leader training for them before he was arrested. So John 16, John chapter 16 records what Jesus taught them. Let me read for you, for you. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Imagine how Jesus just blew the minds of his followers. How could it possibly be better that he's leaving them? But what he's saying is that in leaving them, he's gifting them God's energizing presence through the third person of the Trinity. 
It's God's ruach, his breath, wind, spirit, coming to dwell in them forever, never leaving. Now here the spirit calls, or here Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper and the spirit of truth. In other New Testament references, he's called the comforter, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. And he is sent by God the Father as a sign and a seal of our new life in the family of God. Paul writes, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so with the spirit in you, you have everything you need to live what you believe. And what do we believe? Well, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. At first glance, these can appear to be a collection of random beliefs tacked on to the end of the creed, but they all flow from the Holy Spirit. So let's connect the dots and learn how new life comes from the Spirit. So first, to state belief in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints is to recognize that you have a new family. You belong. This isn't the first time we've addressed this in the creed. The statement of belief in God as Father reminds us that we're part of the family of God. And so from every time and place, God's people are collectively his family. That's what the adjective Catholic means. Remember, universal. So let's linger here on that word for just a minute. Universal. Christ died for all. All are welcome in the kingdom of God. The book of Revelation repeatedly tells us of the nations who are praising God for eternity. There's no boundaries in the Christian faith. From the beginning, God told his followers to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, many of the world religions are very tied to a specific language or specific place or both, but not Christianity. Remember what happened at Pentecost. The Spirit filled the disciples and they spoke many different languages. So when we believe in a holy Catholic church, we believe the good news of Jesus Christ is meant for all people everywhere. God's bringing together the most diverse family the world's ever seen. And while we can't all gather in one building right now, we get to spend eternity together. Isn't that the coolest thought? Like you're not just going to see your grandpa or your favorite aunt again. You're going to see all the Christians of every generation. My friend Heather, she's always talking about who she's going to track down in heaven. And we joke that she's got this Rolodex of names that she's taking with her. And let me just make a small plug here for global missions. We may not yet be worshiping with the universal church, but we can go and experience a glimpse of heaven when we participate in missions. We partner with churches in Japan, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, and with missionaries all over the world. And when you come along Christ's followers in a different culture and language than you, you're reminded how wonderfully beautiful, creative, and diverse the family of God is. So I would encourage any teen or adult to prayerfully consider participating in our global missions trips or teams. Okay, so the church is the family of God in every time and place, but it is also specifically the movement of God's people in this time and place. The church is not a building, it's a people. The Greek word that the New Testament uses for church is ekklesia, which simply means an assembly of people. Ek meaning out from and to, kaleo meaning to call. So the fuller Greek meaning for ecclesia was to call people out from their homes to a public space for a meeting. And it's the perfect word for the church because we are the people of God who are called out from the world and called to God. And what are we called to be? Well, if you put together all the New Testament passages, it looks like we're called to be a family who worships, works, and witnesses to the glory of God the Father and the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Remember, the Spirit's God's energizing presence in your life, and through Him, your belief changes the way you live. And so how does belief in the Spirit, the Church, and the communion of saints change our lives? Well, let's highlight three big things using some New Testament passages. First, you live in true community in the local church. And the New Testament writers, they spent a lot of time describing how the community of believers functions together, from Jesus painting the picture of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, to narratives from the early church in Acts, to letters from Paul and others. And if you look out for the key phrase, one another, you're going to find it used about a hundred times. Now, I don't have time to read all of them or even to explain a couple of them, but let me just let the Word of God speak to you in these few. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Of course, that's Jesus' words. From the Hebrews, we read, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And finally, Paul wrote to the Romans, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Oh, one more. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Love, encouragement, forgiveness, kindness, so much more are found in these one another's. And they're reminding us that when you confess faith in Father, Son, and Spirit, you are aligning your individual self with a much larger community called the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And that's life-changing. The second life-changing aspect of our togetherness is spiritual gifts. God's Spirit empowers God's people to serve one another, and we're all uniquely gifted. Peter writes, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. There's this remarkable individuality in the creative diversity of gifts that are given. And there is this remarkable unity that each of us is brought together to make something much bigger than ourselves. It's like the parts of a body, right? 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 beautifully paints the picture of the family of God as a body whose head is Christ. Just a few verses from chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians say, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So I believe in the body of Christ, and I believe that you are all designed and gifted members of the body. I believe God's brought us together in this time and place to serve one another and encourage one another and support one another. And when we're doing that well, our lives are changed. One more life-changing piece of belief in the Spirit and the church is a, well, it's a hard word for us right now, and that's the word unity. And I think Jesus knew just how hard this one would be. We don't have many prayers of Jesus recorded for us, but John does record Jesus' final prayer in the garden before his arrest. And did you know that Jesus prays for the church, for you and me and all of us? Listen to his prayer. He says, Also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, where we see the ESV say perfectly one, the NIV reads complete unity. And both of these ideas, far easier said than done. Now, I could say a lot more about this concerning church history and denominationalism and our current divisive culture, but let's summarize it with this. When you say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, it's a reminder that God's presence in you and in me, God's spirit in us, is for the building up of his church. It's not for your personal gain, though God is, of course, interested in you personally. But your personal life and your story are part of a much bigger story he's writing. It's the story of God's family. Ben Myers, the author of the book I quoted at the beginning, says, Each human being is a fragment torn loose from the whole. And so the Holy Spirit, he pulls all our fragments together. He connects us to one another as brothers and sisters. And so God is for you just as God is for me and God is for us. And we must be for one another, living and working together in the one another's, using our gifts to serve the family and doing our best to live in peace and in unity. And not only is this going to change how you live, but it will also change how the world views the church. Jesus stated twice in that prayer that our unity tells the world who he is. Now, I can't think of a better way to wrap up this first part, this first part than to read Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 4. And as I read this and as you hear this, remember that every time Paul says you, that word is plural, like y'all, okay? Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. So what do we believe? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So from the new life of this Holy Spirit, we have a new family, the church. And now let's turn to the forgiveness of sins. So are there any sinners here with me today? Yeah, I thought so, right? Forgiveness is really good news for you and me, for all of us. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, your debts paid, your sins are forgiven, and God is not holding sin against you. Last week, Pastor Mike, he reviewed the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. And 1 Corinthians 6.11 reminds us that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit's energizing presence in our lives allows us to receive and believe that we are forgiven. Gordon Fee says it much better than me. He says, by the presence of the Spirit, God's love played out to the full in Christ isn't an experienced reality in the heart of the believer. Now, when you believe in your forgiveness, you will realize that you have a new relationship. God's made a way for you to be in his presence, and that means you can have personal relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. 
That's a whole sermon in itself, but let's do a quick flyover of the story of scripture to put this into perspective. So Genesis 2 tells us that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and their relationship was full on perfect and complete, but then they sinned and sin separates, sin divides, and he who's holy cannot be in relationship with sin, but God wants relationship. He does not want to be far off. And so God makes a way. And the Old Testament way was the tabernacle and then the temple. And God gave his people this system of festivals and sacrifices so that the blood of an innocent animal would atone for their sins. And once a year at the Passover feast, one guy, just one, the high priest, he got to enter this place called the Holy of Holies. It's the innermost part of the temple. It's separated from everything else by a thick curtain. And he would bring the blood that meant forgiveness and restoration of relationship with God. The rest of the year, well, you brought your pigeon or goat or lamb as a sin offering, but you didn't get to go into that holy place. This was a way to God, but there was a better way. And so God sent his son to be the sin offering. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus died on the cross. Both Matthew and Luke record that the temple curtain tore from top to bottom. Can you imagine how astonished the priests would have been? On the exact day of the Passover sacrifice, at the exact moment of Christ's death, the barrier that separated God's presence from his people was torn apart. Is that a coincidence? Not a chance. God was making a clear statement like Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so you and I, we are welcome to enter the presence of God. In fact, his very presence dwells with us through his Holy Spirit. And we often fail to appreciate the miracle and the wonder, the awesome truth of that. I imagine God's people of the Old Testament days asking us in heaven, hey, what was it like? How did it feel to have the Spirit with you at all times? And one very good answer is that we are sure of our forgiveness. The Apostle John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this communion of saints believes in the forgiveness of sins. No one of us gets to be a saint by our own merit. It's only by the blood of Jesus. And belief in the forgiveness of sins, well, that radically changes your life because you move from separation to personal relationship with God the Father and with Jesus the Son through the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So what do we believe? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, not only do you have this new relationship and a new family, but the new life of the Spirit means that you receive the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so your perspective changes and you have a new reality. Life without the Spirit, well, that's just day-to-day living and breathing and working and eventually dying. But life in the Spirit means a new present reality and a new future. Time turns upside down and you've got this now and not yet life. Forgiveness is now. The gifts of the Spirit are now. But we're also expectant and hopeful for what is not yet. And so while we're experiencing pain and sickness now, while we see the effects of a broken world now, we're waiting for resurrection. Now, I wish it did, but the New Testament doesn't actually give a lot of details on this resurrection. It affirms again and again that there will be one, but not exactly how doesn't even tell us exactly how Jesus was resurrected. The gospel accounts all catch up with him after the fact. 
So without trying to explain every detail, let's just take a little highlight tour of some New Testament passages. First, let's start with Jesus. In John 14, he's preparing his disciples for his departure. He's trying to give them the heads up about his death. Now it's clear they're not fully fully understanding. Listen to this. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I just love Thomas. Now, many of us have heard Jesus say those words without actually realizing the context. It's how we're getting to that place Jesus prepares, leaves everyone while scratching their heads. But Jesus says, follow me. I'm the way. I'll lead you there. Perhaps the best explanation we have on the resurrection is from Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Behold, I tell you a mystery, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even Paul describes the resurrection as a mystery, and that's okay, because even in the mystery, the Bible offers assurance. And that assurance comes through the Holy Spirit, who's our seal and guarantee. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so your reality changes when you believe the promise, the guarantee of a future inheritance a new physical body, an eternal home where time never ends and all the things that were shattered are made whole, where we're no longer divided but living in perfect unity, where loving one another is not hard to do, where the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit brings perfect peace and joy to all sons and daughters. Gordon Fee writes, The role of the Spirit is on earth in dwelling believers in order to help them in the weakness of their present, already not yet existence. 